0: Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, where our goal is to listen to the top artists and songs of the last 100 years, starting in 1920 and working our way forward. Four days a week, we review what we hear and share the history of popular music with you, as we do. I'm Richie, and you're listening to Side A of episode 1920-5, where today we'll be focusing on some music you may not expect to hear in a podcast about modern popular music, classical orchestral works, and songs without singers. Don't worry, we won't get too academic in this episode, but we will start trying to understand why classical music is as studied and appreciated as it is. Today we feature a few different artists, Chopin, Yasha Heifetz, Rachmaninoff, Ted Lewis, and Joseph C. Smith. These composers, artists, and performers all worked in and around orchestras, but that word has a very different meaning between them. First, we have Chopin and Heifetz. Chopin won't be someone that we'll be focusing on much in this episode, as he had been dead for 71 years by this version's publishing, but he did write our first song, Nocturne in E-flat major, Opus 9 No. 2. So, I don't know about you, but having only been in the world of classical music for about two minutes so far, I'm in need of a dictionary, so let's break that down. First, a nocturne is a piece of music that's supposed to make you think of night, or to have been inspired by night. It's like the word nocturnal, so that one's simple enough. Similarly, the key of E-flat major is given to differentiate it from other nocturnes. Then, because it's absolutely possible that Chopin liked writing nocturnes in E-flat, and that this could be one of many, we have an opus number that tells us when he published the piece relative to the rest of his works. Opus literally means work, and in this case we're listening to opus number 9, which was a collection of three nocturnes published at the same time. This is the second of those three, and thus named number 2. Clear as Mud Unfortunately, there are no opus police enforcing these standards, so they can be a bit more loosey-goosey than you might think. For example, Mozart doesn't even use them, instead going by K numbers named for the initial of the man who cataloged Mozart's music, Kerschel. Haydn is another exception, whose pieces are prefixed with HOB for Hoboken, who cataloged Haydn's music. It is certainly a minefield, especially when you consider that if a musician has already been fully cataloged, but then a new piece is discovered... It will mean either reordering or appending the opus system somehow. Even worse, certain composers like Antonin Dvorak would sell new material with older, incorrect opus numbers to skirt contracts, and vice versa his publishers were known to give him high opus numbers as a new artist to make it seem like he'd been around for a while and was more established. With all that, we can understand that as we listen to Chopin's Nocturne, we can try to supplement the listening experience with imagery of night, dark, Gold, Moonlight, Silvery Paths, and things like that. If you're listening to this when it was published in late October, that sounds perfect. But why is Heifetz credited as the artist on this piece? He's not Chopin, so he didn't write it, and he was born 50 years after Chopin was dead. What Heifetz did do was make two major contributions to this version of the Nocturne. First, as Chopin wrote the piece for piano, it had to be rewritten for violinists to play. And this version is the way that Heifetz arranged it for violin. When you see other violinists play this song, you'll sometimes see that contribution abbreviated in the title as A.R.R. Heifetz to denote his arrangement is being used. Second, Heifetz is widely respected as one of the greatest violinists of all time, and he plays on this recording himself. It is incredibly complex and even taunting by the end of the piece, so listen for that and see if you can catch it. From another virtuoso like Heifetz, Sergei Rachmaninoff both composed and plays on our next track, Prelude in G Minor, Opus 23, No. 5. Rachmaninoff was born in the Russian Empire like so many emigrants to the U.S. were at the time, but unlike them, he was a member of the aristocracy and ended up growing up there until he was an adult. He attended the Moscow Conservatory, was conductor of the Bolshoi Theater, and vice president of the Imperial Russian Music Society. He held this latter post until he resigned, over the dismissal of one of the music society's employees who was being fired for being Jewish. When the Russian Revolution of 1917 happened, Rachmaninoff's home was confiscated, and he was forced to work as a civil guard and a member of the Communist Party to survive. Upon receiving an offer to play piano in Scandinavia, he fled Russia under the guise of leaving for work, eventually immigrating to the United States where he would live until his death in 1943. Interestingly enough, Chopin had a large impact on Rachmaninoff, who, like Chopin, wrote preludes meant to stand on their own as individual pieces of expression, rather than as previews of larger themes that would be more common in the Baroque or Romantic period. Our next performer, Ted Is Everybody Happy Lewis, wasn't born in Russia, but he did end up marrying a ballerina. Lewis was born in Circleville, Ohio in 1890, and it's obvious at the outset of listening that he is one of the first musicians in our journey so far to be playing New Orleans-style jazz. While Lewis's certainly wasn't the first jazz band in reality, he and his competition from the original Dixieland Jazz Band were some of the first recorded jazz in this style, and would have been responsible for exposing most of America to the sound for the first time. Definitely listen for that, and his clarinet playing, especially in blues My Naughty Sweetie Gives to Me. Joseph C. Smith, our final artist, was born in Sag Harbor, New York, in 1883, and was professionally playing music by 1899 at the age of 16. By the time he recorded this version of The Love Nest in 1920, he'd been the resident musician at the Plaza Hotel in New York for six years, where he would play dance music for the hotel guests and at parties. We just listened to The Love Nest with words in episode 1920-2 where John Steele sang it. So to hear it without lyrics might be jarring, but this was common in 1920 for bands to play popular music without their lyrics. Well, this has already been a much longer intro than normal, so let's get to the music already. If you're not already listening to this part of the podcast through the Spotify playlist, it's highly recommended that you look the show up on Spotify by searching Cunningham's Law Review. On our Spotify page, you'll find a playlist that features this, the side A of the podcast, each of the songs we'll be listening to for today, and side b of the podcast where we recap the songs we've heard and review each one on their own today's playlist is posted on spotify under the title cunningham's law review 1920-5 you can also find the link to the playlist on the cunningham's law review subreddit at reddit.com r slash cunningham's law review we want to know what you think about our reviews and the music we're hearing so make sure to join us on the subreddit or leave us an anchor voicemail that's all for side a of episode 1920-5 We'll see you for the reviews after the song's on Side B. Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1920-5. You're now listening to the B-side of the podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs and pieces had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd also love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music or at least heard something new. Today's music was performed by virtuosos and pioneers who all played with or wrote for orchestras. While you may have noticed that some of the orchestras we're talking about are essentially big bands in practice, some of the others feature more traditional instrumentation of violins and pianos. But talent is talent no matter where you find it. And what a talent Yasha Heifetz proves himself to be on our first song, Nocturne Opus 9 Number no. 2 in E-flat major. From this, my only reference to Yasha Heifetz, he seems like the Eddie Van Halen of violin. And not just because he plays complicated and technical material extremely fast, but because it also comes across, from a hundred years ago, as if he is taunting you to be better than he is. Like he really just wants someone to challenge him so that he'll know whether or not he's the best. It was really interesting listening to this Nocturne for that reason, on top of the fact that it's one of Chopin's most well-known pieces. For authenticity, the Nocturne receives a four. Heifetz arranged this version of Chopin's Nocturne, and in putting his own spin on it, he not only challenged other musicians to keep up, he maintained an incredibly sweet and sumptuous tone. Were this a Heifetz original, I think it would have been a five. This also ties into the piece's innovation score of four, since he pushed his violin hard and pulled it off. For catchiness, the song earns a three, because as classical music can sweep you up and take you somewhere, its structure makes it much less likely to get caught by a hook. There are phrases in the song that repeat, but not in a way I found to be engaging after it was all over. For mastery though, Heifetz earns a five. He is truly impressive, not only for his technical skill, but also for the emotion with which he plays. Importantly, he is somehow extraordinarily romantic, but not melodramatic or schmaltzy, a scourge for many of the songs of this era that Heifetz rises above. Finally, for artistic statement, Heifetz's Nocturne receives a four. While part of his artistic statement was that Chopin should be played by violin, The other part was him saying, and this is how it's done, earning him and the Nocturne a total score of 20. It's interesting to know that Fritz Kreisler, who was another master of the 20th century violin, said, we might as well take our fiddles and break them across our knees after hearing Heifetz play for the first time. I imagine there were and still are a lot of guitarists who feel the same way about Eddie Van Halen. As a side note, I like classical music, but I'm a lay person. I don't have any formal education in it, but that's how most listeners are always going to be. One of the ways I've found that I can enjoy classical music most is by using it as guided meditation. I try to clear my mind and let the music paint imagery and stories in my head. You don't let anything but the music control your imagination, and by giving over to it, I'm able to both relax and enjoy the music for what it is rather than what academics understand it to be. If you've never liked classical, give that a shot and you might find it more engaging. When I let my mind wander to Rachmaninoff's Prelude in G minor, I found the opening chords to be very harsh. They pulsed and drove, and it felt like they were in control of the direction of everything. In writing this part of the review, but after listening, I read that these sections are marked as a march in the sheet music, and this section feels regimented and tense. This tension and then release sets up an intense relief in the dense arpeggiated section where everything changes, and it feels like you're being swept up in a wind full of warm spring air. It's like falling in love amid times of war. Interestingly, Frank Lloyd Wright is known for doing this in architecture, where when you would enter one of his buildings, you would be in a more tightly confined space, like an alcove or a hallway, that would then open up into a much wider and bigger space with a tall ceiling. It was supposed to be like walking through a dark tunnel and then emerging into a bright sunny field. And that's how Rachmaninoff's prelude made me feel. Like Heifetz's Nocturne, Rachmaninoff's Prelude earns a score of 20 overall, and does so in the same way with scores of 4 in Authenticity, Innovation, and Artistic Statement, but a 3 in Catchiness and a 5 in Mastery. Of special note, I really enjoyed the sweeping tempo changes in the middle section. It was as if time was changing speed, going slower and faster in bursts, like we were traveling near black holes that change space and time as you get closer. Like I said, I let my mind wander. One of the things I enjoy most about famous classical pieces is that they're almost all out of copyright, and many other modern masters have played this piece, which we can then compare to Rachmaninoff's version. Differences come out quickly, and it's obvious when you listen to other interpretations that there's something special in Rachmaninoff's playing. It speaks to you more clearly, and is less an interpretation of music than a statement through music itself. Now moving on to Ted Lewis, we can acknowledge that he does one thing really well. And that's assimilate other people's styles into his playing in a way that makes it seem like he really understands them. It's a real skill to be able to play what others develop over a long time as if it was your own, but Ted Lewis was able to manage it. Blues My Naughty Sweetie Gave Me is a wordless tune and doesn't seem extraordinarily bluesy, but by now many songs that we've listened to don't struggle too hard to differentiate the two. This song receives threes across the board as it's an average performance of a decent song. Ted Lewis did us a huge favor though, He re-recorded this same song in 1926 and in that version which is on spotify under ted lewis's album wondering you can really see what a quick study he is of the developing jazz styles that surrounded him that version features much more interesting overlaps in the solos which is a hallmark of new orleans jazz and even more so features muted trumpet which is usually attributed to king oliver's jazz band and first recorded in 1923 That Lewis was able to amalgamate these new styles so quickly and effectively make a big difference in his score, and that version, were it to have been recorded in 1920 and beating out King Oliver for that mute horn innovation, would have received a 19. Lewis's next track, I'll see you in CUBA, would be a lot better if it had lyrics, since the whole point of the song is the pun in the chorus, and the artistic statement of the verses against prohibition is lost when you remove the lyrics. While Lewis was certainly dealing with the effects of prohibition as were most, and receives a 3 in authenticity, his artistic statement for leaving out the lyrics of a lyrical song gets knocked down to a 2. For innovation and mastery, Lewis receives 3s for his clarinet work, but Catchiness receives a 2 for breaking up the song with that whistling bit, which only seems to serve to make the song less monotonous by providing something new that otherwise doesn't help to develop the song. This totals up to a 13 for I'll See You in C.U.B.A. Bringing Up the Rear is ironically Ted Lewis's biggest hit for 1920, a song that spent 18 weeks at number one on the billboard and yet earns a 12 out of 25 points 100 years later, When My Baby Smiles at Me. Honestly, this was the first song where I was completely surprised it was a big hit, especially as big as it was. The lyrics being performed in near-spoken word and the corny horn replying back as if it's speaking fail to carry the already weak and well-trodden message that his girl makes him happy. The song receives threes for authenticity and innovation, with Lewis's clarinet playing doing most of the work there, and twos in the remaining categories, tying Smith's performance for lowest-scoring song in today's episode with 12. Smith's Love Nest to me is a remix that doesn't work. Smith, as we discussed on Side A, was the Plaza House band leader, and so we can infer that his version was likely popular as a dance tune of The Love Nest, which was a well-known song at the time due to John Steele, who we reviewed in 1920-2. Smith's version features a faster tempo and removes the lyrics, but in doing so essentially transforms the song into background music. While that may have been effective for a ballroom performance, it doesn't work well as a standalone recording, and thus this version receives twos for authenticity, innovation, and artistic statement, and threes in catchiness and mastery. I will say that while I didn't really find the chorus in John Steele's version to be catchy, this version had me whistling the tune in my kitchen. Today's reviews of four very different pieces do show us how variable music can be, even in the same year. Rachmaninoff and Heifetz average out 1920 with very high scores of 20, but Lewis and Smith receive below average scores of 13.3 and 12. We want to know what you think, whether or not you agree with us, because Cunningham's Law states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer somewhere. So make sure to find the subreddit's dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review or reach out through an anchor voicemail. If you leave us an anchor voicemail that we end up using on the show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own bands. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the podcast and playlist. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. We'll be back tomorrow for a special edition episode we call Cover to Cover, where we'll be tracing two songs' impacts throughout the century. We'll be taking you from Gershwin to Lana Del Rey and from Marion Harris to David Lee Roth. Come to think of it, that's actually odd and unplanned that we have two Van Halen references in this one episode, but sometimes everything just comes back to Van Halen. Until next time, I've been your host, Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme is a difficult subject by the insider, And nobody else works here. Hey everybody, Richie here. We record these episodes in advance due to our rapid publication schedule. And the day after we recorded this one, Eddie Van Halen passed away having lost his battle with cancer. As we review the artists of our past, we can always stop to recognize the ones around us that make our life better and brighter now. Eddie's innovative style, love of music, and dedication to performance created joy in the hearts of so many. And from Cunningham's Law Review, we say thank you. May you two-hand tap the hell out of your harp.